Um, and we are recording this call. Uh, I'll say that again. Welcome everybody to our consci Consciousness Raising Book Club. Our mission at the Peace Alliance is to inspire civic action for a culture of peace. And we design our programs to hopefully inspire, educate, and motivate you to mobilize for peace. And our calls address a variety of topics and, and we have a variety of speakers directly related to creating peace, creating conditions for peace. Uh, on a personal level, we create peace by being the peace we wanna see in the world. And some of our values are empathy, compassion, kindness, and connection with ourselves and others. Uh, and you can go to peacealliance.org if you're not already familiar with our website and find out more about everything we're doing. I'd like to take a moment to honor the native lands on which we live. We're grateful for native and indigenous peoples of the Americas and the care they've given to the lands on which we live. We pay our respects to elders, both past and present. And honoring occupied native lands acts as an expression of gratitude and appreciation for those whose territory we live on. Uh, it's important to understand the history that brought us to this land, as well as to seek to better understand our place and role in that history. And to help with that understanding, our February-March selection for our book club is an Indigenous People's History of the United States. I'm going to put the link in that. I re recommend if you want to read this book to buy the hard copy, the, uh, the uh, paperback, the, the writing is very small. And we're going to do the first half of the book in March and the second half, I mean, February and the second half in March. And our Peace Builder call in March features Jenny Sawanek, a member of the Moose Cree First Nation tribe in Canada. And I'm going to put her link in the chat. Uh, she's a fascinating woman. And what she's doing in Canada is very cool. Let me see, did that get, did that get put in there? Uh, yes, redstonesnakewoman.ca. Uh-huh, redstonesnakewoman. And you can get all of our programs on our calendar. We have a lot going on. Uh, we have programs on Tuesdays. On the third Wednesday of the month, we have the Department of Peace Building call. On the second and fourth Saturdays, we have the um, Hope Circle call. And we're going to have other um, offerings on, on the first and fifth and third Saturdays. Um, at times on restorative justice. So we're guided by the five cornerstones of peace, uh, community peace building, humanizing justice systems, cultivating national peace, fostering international peace and practicing peace in schools. And five cornerstones of peace building are also endorsed in the blueprint of peace. And uh, you can sign the, the petition uh, that will go to your members of Congress and ask them to uh, support policy priorities around peace building and violence reduction. And again, you can go to our website and all this is there. So, um, so let's start 
our discussion. I want to read the, uh, the quote. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about something I found about the author that I thought was very interesting. And then I want to read the quote from the, the very uh, beginning of the book by Harriet Tubman. And then we can, uh, I'll ask the first question of everybody. So uh, uh, the war, Jasmine Ward and her family were uh, affected by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Their house was rapidly flooding. And so they left in their car and they were going to go to the, their local church, but they didn't get that far. They found this uh, huge piece of land uh, that was full of field tractors and they stopped there. And when the white bodied owners of the land eventually came to check on their tractors, they refused to invite the wards into their home, claiming they were overcrowded. So um, tired and traumatized, they were eventually given shelter by another white bodied family down the road. She said she, after Katrina, she could not write for three years. And then I think four or five years after that, she wrote her first book. Uh, the, the book we read is her third book. And it started with a um, striking quote that sets the tone for the book. We saw the lightning and that was the guns. And then we heard the thunder and that was the big guns. And then we heard the rain falling and that was the blood falling. And when we came to get in the crops, it was dead men that we reaped. Reading that just like, it hits you. So let me ask everybody, I'm gonna post this in the chat. And we'll just go around one by one. Did that post? Yeah, okay. So, how did you experience the book? Did you get pulled in immediately or was it slow, you know, getting into it? How did you feel when you read it? And does this make you want to read other books by her? So who wants to go first? How did you experience the book? What did it say to you? I'll go first. Um, hi, everybody. Um, Deanne Tate, uh, calling from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, I, I really, I have not, I must confess, I've not finished the book yet, um, but I am enjoying reading it. I, um, I, I, I find her writing style to be really easy to follow, um, and, and I, I can hear her voice, which is really nice. Sometimes when I read um, books. I'm, I'm not able to, I mean, I don't, I don't, I obviously haven't actually heard her voice, but I feel like I can hear her voice as I read, um, her words. So I did get pulled in, um, fairly easily. Um, I haven't read anything else by her, but I, I do, I would like to, so I like her writing style. Who else? I, I need to admit that I haven't read the book. Uh, the thing well, I got on, uh, on the internet was uh, 
don't worry if you haven't read it. So I'm not worrying about it. Good, good. I learned. <laughs> yeah, we're learn glad you're here. About, maybe I'll buy it. Yeah, wonderful. Well, what did you think about the quote I read? I wasn't listening very well. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'll post it in the chat. Jackie, can, go ahead. I can do that, Kathy. Okay, great. I was trying to figure out this chat. Normally, you can save the chat. Uh huh. And yeah. It doesn't seem to be available on, on my thing on this connection. So. Okay. Jackie, go ahead. Uh, okay, yes, I'm Jackie Spurlock. I live in Portland, Oregon. And um, I, I actually did read the whole book. I got it from the library and uh, returned it. I wish I had it here in my hand uh, to refer to as we talk, but um, it was only a couple of weeks ago that I returned it. So um, hopefully that won't be a, <laughs> a problem. I, um, I, I like the book a lot. I was... Uh, drawn into it early on, I think, right away. I, um, as uh, Deanne said, I, I like her writing style. I think she's a good writer and it was very accessible. And um, I, I guess maybe at the beginning, I was sort of wondering where is she going with this? But, but I, I got over that very quickly. It's, I think it's a, a very interesting concept to look at the uh, lives of five uh, young black men and um, who who all died um, in various ways because of racism. And she pulled that off very well. I I liked it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bonnie, would you like to say anything? You're muted if you want to speak. I know it takes me there a while to get to the button. Yeah, um, I I came in to listen. Okay, Jana, how about you? Do you want to say anything about the book? Me too. I came to listen. Oh, okay, great. Well, I have lots to talk about. I'm sure uh, Deanne and Jackie do too. <laughs> uh, so I loved it too. I uh, couldn't put it down. And so I read it, you know, like pretty quickly. And I read it uh, like about a year ago. So I, I reread re it, uh, started a few days ago rereading it. And in rereading it, uh, I just saw all the, the uh, march toward death. Didn't get that in the beginning, the first time I read it. So I was felt so heavy. It's like all of this language and, and, I just didn't get it the first time, right? I remember the first time it was very sad. But uh, this time I noticed all the language around the sadness starting from the very beginning. So uh, let me go to another. Uh, and I have some passages to read if, if, uh, if some of these questions don't speak to us. Uh, let me put these two in there. Let's 
So did the book help you understand something that you did not understand before? Or has this novel changed or broadened your perspective? Have you learned something new or been exposed to something you did not know before? Oh, I, I double, double put that in there, but anyway. So that's the, the question for anybody who wants to talk about that. I am, um, I'm not sure that I, um, I, I haven't finished the book, so there might be learnings yet to be acquired. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that I have at this point learned anything new. Um, I think she, she does an amazing job of, of expressing the rawness of what it is to lose uh, men in her life that were so pivotal um, by um, by means that could have been prevented if we just didn't have these systemic issues in our in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I and that really um, I appreciated her the the struggle that it must have been for her to to put that down on paper uh it's one thing to know that it happened but it's i've, I've written my own book so i know that when you write the words down it kind of it it causes you in, in so many ways to relive um the experience that you're uh, expressing so i really appreciate her um willingness and ability to go through that again, um, mm. just to bring the stories to those of us who may not understand what that feels like. Right, yeah. Ooh. Jack, anything you wanna say about that? Um, yeah, I, let's see, I'm still collecting my thoughts here. Uh, understanding something I did not understand before. So I, um, have somehow managed to get through my life as a fairly, um, let's say a fairly liberal Democrat without really understanding racism. I living in Portland, I don't really know any black people and I have had all sorts of bizarre thoughts about it, including that it's a problem uh, of the South or let's say inner cities or something. But a year and a half ago, I joined a book group at my church, First Unitarian Church in Portland, that studies anti-racism. And we have read, uh, I think five books now. And now this year we've turned into just a, a women's group who get together and talk about whatever. But um, I am learning so much, and this book added to what I'm learning. I, it really humbles me to have to say that I wasn't aware of racism as a systemic issue through the, as a foundation of how our society is set up and works. And, you know, if I'd read this book five or 10 years ago, let alone 40 years ago, I would have probably continued to think, well, this is a problem in the South. But now, reading it now, I see that, no, this is a problem for uh, 
our whole society, but certainly for um, Black people all through our country. And um, we, we can learn to be part of the solution. We don't have to continue to be part of the problem. So those are things I'm, I'm learning, and this book just added to a process that I had started fairly recently in my life. Yeah. There's a passage in the book that says, um, it was when the economy started changing and they started bringing in casinos into uh, New Orleans and that, the Gulf Coast area. And so, uh, people were getting jobs there, but black people who historically did not have the resources to attend college and so did not qualify for administrative positions were limited to jobs as cocktail waitresses, valet attendants and food preparers. So that's just an, and uh, demand was lucky to have his job. Uh, that's just an example of how, uh, you know, we set this, this system is set up from, from school age, right, uh, forward. In fact, there's another passage in the book that talks about that. Let me see what, what um, okay, page 26. Um, I'm happy to read if you'd, like to, if you'd like to read it out loud. Okay, page 26. If you go down to the last paragraphs where it says Raj dropped out of school. Okay. And just um, uh, till, till Raj sat in the back of one, just stop at the sentence before that. I'm sorry, the, your, your audio um, blank. Oh, Where do you want me to stop? Just at the bottom, of the, the bottom of the page, the last sentence of the bottom of the page. Okay. Raj, Raj dropped out of school in the 10th grade. It's not uncommon for young black men to drop out here. Sometimes they are passively forced out by school authorities, branded as misfits or accused of serious offenses, like selling drugs or harassing other students. Sometimes they're pushed out, they're pushed to the back of classrooms and ignored. Yeah, that really hits you in the gut, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I live in Bridgeport now, but I, I moved here from Charleston, South Carolina, um, which we um, um, call Confederate Disneyland because that's really what it still is. And there's so much of this particular experience going on in the classrooms on the regular day to day in 2022. Um, just the the um, the inequities of how black students and white students are treated, expected to behave, and the the use of officers in the classrooms to intimidate and silence the black and brown students. And th this passage made me think of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let me go to the, another question. Anybody want to say, even if you haven't read the book, Chuck or Jana, um, you may want to say something about, you may know something you want to add to this. Feel free if you do. Um, yeah, um, I've become involved. There's some people at the church I go to, the um, Ethical Society of uh, Philadelphia. And um, 
we have a big program trying to to um, fight racism and, and and that sort of thing. And we have some people who have said this is not really a problem of racism; it's a problem of inequity and uh, poverty and that sort of thing. And in this case, I guess the book's about a rural situation. And I've observed personally uh, in rural areas, um, poor whites are pretty badly off. They don't get all the privileges and everything that we're talking about. We talk about white privilege and all that sort of thing. Very poor and very difficult very hard to get jobs and that sort of thing. So does this book, I mean, this book seems to start from a point that black people have it particularly hard and I'm sure they do, but is there really that much difference between poor white people living in the rural areas and poor black people living in the rural areas? Yeah. Does the book address that at all? No, it's a memoir, but, um... There, there are a lot of commonalities, right? Reverend Barber has the Poor People's Campaign bringing people together with common interests, no matter what race they are. The difference between poor whites and black people is that a poor white can go and get a better job than a black person because they don't have their color against them. So that is the advantage, you know, our, our skin color is our advantage. So, yeah. And maybe they would be treated better in the classroom than a black person would. I mean, there are certain advantages that we have as white people, white bodied people. In fact, um, what's it like to know that as white bodied people, women particularly, we don't have the fear of our men not returning home unless of course they're in a dangerous profession. You know, I, I have friends and you read about this all the time with it, when their son goes out the door or their husband goes out the door, they don't know if they're gonna return. They dread them being stopped by the police. So can you imagine yeah. be like, no matter well, what age your son is or husband to not know if they're gonna come home? Yeah, some of that at least still goes on. I have white friends who said, um, often, you know, from people with mental problems and stuff, if I go into a fit or have problems, don't call the police. They'll shoot me. Yeah. Um, so there's some of that that goes on with poor white people as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely, common, definitely commonalities, but there's also stark differences, right? I think it's important to remember those, those differences because they're they're not small differences. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the other, um, you know, the other caveat to that uh, I just wanted to share too is that as white-bodied people, regardless of what our circumstances are, if we're poor or we have mental illness or we have other things, we can often hide that behind, you know, we can change our appearance, we can change the way we move through space. We're often accepted just as we walk in to any space because so many spaces, some would argue most spaces in this country are white spaces, um, white accepted spaces. 
but a person of color can't change, you know, they, they cannot mm. hide their skin color and the bias that comes with that, that is systemic, um, is, is really real. But, um, but like Kathy said, Bishop Barber, um, with the poor people's campaign, he talks a lot about the, um, how we have to band together regardless of, you know, it, it's important for people poor, he calls them poor and low wealth people of all races to band together, to demand better, uh, experiences. Um, you can do that and also honor the differences that black and brown people experience. That's even a cut above what anyone white bodied, uh, experiences. It's a both and it's not an either or. Yeah. Yeah. There's a passage on page five when she was in school, uh, high school. Um, and people, her classmates would talk about black people, try not to look at her and then they'd look at her. And she said, I didn't want them to look at me after saying something about black people. Didn't want to have to avert my eyes so they didn't see me studying them, studying the entitlement they wore like another piece of clothing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, many of us aren't even aware the what our white skin entitles us to. Yeah. Yeah. That's the nature of the entitlement mm -hmm. is that we don't have to feel it. You know, that's, that's how it's set up. It's set up for our comfort. So, so when we, when, when we awaken and we realize the realities that are out there for people that don't look like us, it's, 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 it's quite an awakening because the nature of the system is that we don't feel it. Um, yeah. We're the, we're the default. Anyone with darker skin kind of has to prove that they are uh, okay, acceptable, or competent, or whatever they need to show. Right. But yeah. we're the default. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mitch McConnell <laughs> uh, reminded us of that just the other day. So it's all still very, very much aware. So there's another passage um, where she says uh, they were joking. You know, all the, the her male friends said they should write about, she should write about them. And uh, she said um, she heard this often. Most of the men in my life thought their stories whether they were drug dealers or straight-laced, were worthy of being writ written. I laughed it off. Now as I write these stories, I see the truth in their claims. The, Damon said it'd be a bestseller. And she said, I don't write real life stuff. It was my stock response for that suggestion. But even as I said it, I experienced a sort of dissonance. I knew the boys in my first novel, which I was writing at that time, weren't as raw as they could be, weren't real. I loved them so much as an author. I was a benevolent God and didn't want to write about them. I protected them from death, from drug addiction, from needlessly harsh sentences in jail for doing stupid juvenile things. So she didn't want to write 
the truth originally. It was too hard for her to face. And in this one, she said she couldn't not say anything anymore. Takes an enormous amount of courage to mm -hmm. dig deep and put it down on paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because once it's out there, you can't take it back. You can't change it. You can't, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And she's writing uh, about a, a topic that it has, uh, there are lots of varying views. And I wonder, I mean, she's putting herself out there for uh, pushback as well as uh, I'm sure the book is highly reviewed, but I'm also sure she probably got a lot of uh, negative uh, probably some aggressive, really um, kind of scary um, response too, I would guess. I liked how she told the small stories about them, like uh, one of them going to get diapers, right? Mm -hmm. One of them taking care of, you know, one of the, her sisters that was drunk one night, made sure she got home. Mm -hmm. All these little little things that, you know, um, we don't hear about that. And like when somebody gets arrested or killed, we hear the stuff they did wrong. We don't hear the humanizing of them. Yeah, that's the word that came to mind was the humanizing. Um, and, and to me, that speaks to our society that we, that someone like Jasmine has to go out of her way to humanize someone you know what is it about our what is it about our society that jackie you were saying that that whiteness white body people are the default to me on the other side of the spectrum the default is that these characters these folks are dehumanized that someone mm -hmm. has to go out of their way to humanize them for us to see them and yeah. see their loss and see the importance of their loss, not only to their family, but to the community, to what they could have brought to the world had they stayed longer. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Why do we have to work so hard? Why, do, why does the black community have to work so hard to humanize their loved ones after mm -hmm. their deaths? Yeah. And what does that say about our society? Yeah, and it's also very brave of her, I guess is the, maybe the word, uh, to make them really well-rounded people too. I mean, they have a lot of foibles and personal quirks. They also are deeply flawed as, as all humans are, as we all are. But they, these men have drug problems. They dropped out of school at an early age. And she puts their full stories in and it causes us to think about that. And always we're drawn back to the fact that this is a human being. And then we're also drawn to think now, but why did he drop out? Was that a personal thing? Was it from his family or was it a systemic uh, problem? with racism or, you know, why, why did he become a drug addict at a young age? It really gets us thinking to mm -hmm. present such well-rounded people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if she struggled with, 
you know, should I put that in there because it feeds a narrative that is, you know, I, she may have, I don't know, but I wonder if she, if she questioned whether or not to add those details in because she didn't want to feed the narrative and chose to still give us the full picture of these folks that she loved. Um, yeah. Well, and also to her credit, she allows herself to be a fully <laughs> a well-rounded or, you know, a person with a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, she herself is drinking heavily and not very functional for much of the period that she's telling us about. And yet she's capable of writing a book like this and I think has pulled herself together and has an amazing career now. I just think that's a real strength of the book, the way she presents these people as, as uh, in all of their uh, pluses and minuses. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned that because what comes up for me is, you know, many of us had drinking problems and drug problems, right? I certainly did. Uh, so any of us can be turned around just because uh, one of these black men had a drug problem or drinking problem or whatever doesn't mean that they can't turn their life around. Any of us can turn our life around. Right. It just unfortunately, their lives didn't get to last long enough to, to yeah. see that opportunity. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what I, you know, anytime I hear about another, another young person shot down, uh, there was somebody that was killed by police in Charleston just last week. And, uh, and he was 20 something, I think. And, um, just the just the the opportunities lost you know the human lost the the life that will never be realized lost mm -hmm. in the in the blink of an eye in the second yeah. yeah and what it does to those left behind you know like you lose all these people what does that do to to your life you know you lose them when they're young yeah um. Along those lines, um, I'm just finishing a book called uh, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir by Patrice Kahn Cullors, mm -hmm. um, which goes along kind of the same lines where people, um, black people particularly, and particularly young black men, uh, are arrested just for standing around or they, they go to schools when they have the, the police uh, at their schools. There were shootings in white schools, so we put cops in the black schools um, yeah. kind of thing. And um, that really brings it home and more in an urban environment. And um, she had a, a lot of those experiences, it sounds like, a lot of the same things you're talking about now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That was a good book. You've read it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, to your point earlier, Chuck, you know, when um, 
back in the 1600s when um, in, uh, white people were indentured servants and uh, some of the Native Americans in this country were that also. And they were trying to all get together, black people, white people, Native Americans uh, to you, you know, unionize sort of, right? Very early form of unionizing. But the uh, plantation owners and those with capital saw that that was gonna be not a good idea for all of those people to come together. So they started, you know, uh, passing out um, goodies to the white bodied people so that they would feel like they were a little bit better than the others and were getting a little bit more. So that, that yeah. divide and conquer happened very early on and had it not happened, we would, we would definitely be, be living differently. Actually, there's a, there's a legal case. The first time the word white to describe and, and black to describe humans in a legal case um, is in 1690. And it was a case of um, a, an African enslaved person and two white bodied indentured servants. The three of them ran away together. They, they, they collaborated and they said, we're getting out of here. And they ran away together. Um, and, uh, and they were caught and they were brought back to their, their town and were tried. And in the legal documents, you can see where they delineated, just like what you were saying, Kathy, they delineated the difference between the indentured servants who were white bodied, they called them white and the African enslaved um, person who was, um, who was obviously black. Uh, they talk about it in the case and they gave indentured servants a lighter sentence than they gave the African. And that was intentional. So that's the first legal um, evidence, if you will, in, in documents of the intentional separation. Um, you know, like you like you say, Kathy, to Chuck's point of 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 folks that are seemingly in a similar circumstance. Um, but they are separated and um, stacked in a class, almost a class system um, to prevent them from working together to better their, their common situation. Um, yeah. So it's deeply it's rooted. still happening. Yeah. Yeah. Still happening. Nevertheless, I, I, I think we lose sight of the fact that there were the indentured servants and there were a lot of them were almost as bad off as, as the black servants, right? Yes, Except they got that they weren't kidnapped. <laughs> they weren't. They weren't kidnapped well, and brought from their land. So. Well, close to it. You know, they, they got forced into indentured servants. Uh, they had debts they had to pay and, and so on. But it was time limited. It was time yeah. limited. That's what I was going to say. It wasn't for life. Yeah. For many of them, it was. Children. It, wasn't, it wasn't as bad as the Blacks had it or being a Black slave, but it was a lot worse than being a middle class person. Of course. Um, it's true that. Talk about they had privileges and so on. Yes, they did, but they didn't have that many privileges. They still had to work on a farm for practically nothing. Uh, they couldn't leave the farm if they wanted to. Um, 
you know, and the jobs they had were were the poor jobs. Yeah. Well, and, I, and that still that. happens. I'm not saying it's as bad as the black. Right. Well, but and I, I think we get carried away with black blacks are the only ones that were mistreated. Lots of people. I don't think we're so. I don't think it's useful to think about who suffered more, which situation was worse. Um, I don't think that's what the discussion is about. It's certainly not for me. When you look at the history of, let's say, Europe through the Dark Ages and right on up to, you know, through the Renaissance, really, the level of cruelty that governments impose, executing people right and left, torturing, it's horrible. We have a horrible human history. But I think what we're talking about here is a system that is set up based on race. It was set up that way during the time that we, our economy depended on slavery. But when slavery was abolished, the system was not allowed to change. It, it, there was a period where we thought it might, but then all of a sudden we were thrown back into this system where uh, people are given or not given opportunity based on their color. And I think what we're, what we're saying is the system is unjust and it's not worthy of us. We need a new system. There's a, a movie on Netflix called The Best of Enemies. And it's great for um, one of the white bodied men in the film finally realizes how much he has in common with black people as far as being oppressed economically. It's amazing. It's a really good movie. I, I highly recommend it. What's The it? Best of Enemies. Oh, okay. okay. Another good movie to learn about this progression that um, Jackie, you just laid out and we're talking about here just on the basis, it's not about the book, but it's about, you know, racism is um, 13th on uh, Netflix. And that shows the progression that Jackie was just talking about, about, you know, and I wrote in the chat that chattel slavery was intentional. It was intentional. Um, and, you know, and it was, it was, I mean, even Hitler modeled his his uh, concentration camps after the way slavery was um, chattel slavery was created and flourished in this country. So there there was a lot of intention there, and which rolled into Jim Crow, which rolled into mass incarceration, which rolled into you know what we have now. So uh, you know thir the thirteenth uh, Avery DuVernay's movie is really an eye opener about just that thread throughout you know since the inception of this country on through to today. Yeah. And the name of the movie is the 13th? It's called 13th. 13th. The, the number, yeah, one three with TH, and it's on Netflix. Really, really powerful. I still can't fathom the cruelty of slavery. I just can't understand how anybody could inflict such cruelty on another human being that's still beyond my ability to understand. Oh, well, they don't think of them as human beings. Yeah. That's it, why that's, yeah. some of this stuff is so, so cruel and so black. Um, they don't count as a person. Right. You know, the, 
when even in our constitution, we don't count them as a whole person. Um, and they're not treated as people and they're not thought of as people. They're, they're assets. And that's the, th that's the thread that carries all the way through to, to today's world of, of and, and what Jessamine writes about, about um, you know, young black men's lives being cut down in so many different ways by the police, by um, society, by people calling the police on people, you know, walking through the park, um, barbecuing at a park, you know, just all of these things is that it's the first step in all of that is dehumanization is we still, this country still doesn't think in a lot of ways that black and brown people are worthy of humane treatment and humane consideration. Yeah, and it's not black and brown. I mean, uh, the wars that we go to, the first thing we do when we're gonna go to a war is to dehumanize the enemy. Right. And we call them names, we make up names. Right. You know, slant eyes in the- Yeah, yeah. and so- <laughs> One reason that I've been able to, or not able, one reason I have not been in, in aware of uh, race as a uh, dividing, as a problem in this country, I've managed to avoid it, is because I am extremely immersed in the problem of um, Iran and um, the dehumanization of the Iranians and the Middle East. I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Iran and I lived there for four years in the 70s. And ever since, I've then we had the hostage crisis and one thing after another and the vast um, face of America hates Iran, it, to put it in a very simplistic nutshell. And I am involved with a group of Return Peace Corps, Peace Corps Iran Association, which works to humanize Iranians for Americans. And so I understand what you're saying, Chuck. There are all kinds of problems with Americans dehumanizing whatever we're afraid of. And I think fear is what is the foundation for most of this. But I just have decided during the pandemic to see what I could learn about racism. And I've just been appalled, as I say, I'm really um, kind of shocked with myself for not being aware of this. And I think all these things you're mentioning are problems, but certainly racism is a problem in this country. Oh, yes. It's the, the, it could be said it's the original sin of this country um, yeah. because, because well, the, our economy and all the wealth that so many families and generational generations of families enjoy was built, um, you know, on the backs of the enslaved. So it started there. Well, using Native American land. Of course. It yep. seems to me taking the land came first. And then we brought slaves to it. Colonization in all forms, absolutely. Yeah, I think you have to say the original sins, right? Yeah. Two yeah. original sins. Right. Yeah. Mm. So there was another thing that I thought was interesting. Uh, 
We honor anniversaries of deaths by cleaning graves and sitting next to them before fires, sharing food with those who will not eat again. Mm. We raise children and tell them other things about who they can be and what they are worth to us, everything. We love each other fiercely while we live and after we die. I know. What does that say to, to you? I'm sorry. I just, my son just called me and I ended up texting him for a moment. Um, okay. I, I didn't hear what you, what the question is. Oh, yeah. Did you, it? do you want me to read it again? Uh, yes. Cause I don't see it in the chat. Okay. Uh, what page are you on? Um, uh, 250, 250. Uh, we honor anniversaries of deaths by cleaning graves and sitting next to them before fires, sharing food with those who will not eat again. We raise children and tell them other things about who they can be and what they are worth to us, everything. We love each other fiercely while we live and after we die. The part of um, the part of that that really resonates with me is the uh, the first sentence. We honor anniversaries of deaths by cleaning graves and sitting next to them before fires, sharing food with those who will not eat again. Um, I've actually I've experienced that with families of color, folks that have lost um, loved ones early, mm -hmm. and. Um, it, it 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 angers me that it's such a common thread through um, specifically black families in this country. Um, you know that she can write a memoir with so many different people in her life that have been um, whose lives have been extinguished way before their time. Um, it, it's, it's commonplace and that angers me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so sad to think that they've had to ritualize death mm -hmm. because it's so commonplace and that they, they've had so little time with them that they, what, whatever they can grab, even if it's sitting by the graveside and bringing everybody there so that the whole family is there, even though some might, one of them is in the grave, right? Or all the friends are there, even though one or more of them is in the grave. I mean, that just really, that really struck me. Yeah, the injustice of it and the fact that, I mean, I grew up taking for granted that I and everyone I knew would live to old age. And then of course, if you don't, but I get the feeling that black people grow up knowing that anyone could die at any time and that a lot of people have died where 
they're grieving for a lot of young people. Right. Right. And one of the hardest things for a mother is to lose a child. I just can't imagine. Yes. I have a dear friend who's going through this right now. He went on a ventilator before Christmas and she let him go a couple of weeks ago now. Her child? Yep. 23 years old. Gosh. And what happened? Uh, he had COVID. Uh, it was the second time he'd had it and um, he went into cardiac arrest and, um, and never came back. And I don't know. Um, I don't know if they, I don't know if they truly know. I haven't, she's been in such grief that I haven't had, I haven't been able to talk to her. She's back in Charleston. Um, so I don't know if they ever determined whether or not what the cause of, of whether the, his heart was damaged from the first round of COVID or, you know, what the cause is, but the medical that's another piece where black people have such a different experience than white people because you know because of covid they wouldn't let her in the hospital to go see him so she was camping out in the er and they were threatening to call the police on her and threatening to throw her out this is a mother whose son is up in the in the icu on a ventilator and if she had been white i dare say she would not have been treated that way right and right. The, the 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 lack of information the, you know, the incomplete details, the, you know, the, the um, purposefulness of finding out exactly what killed him and why. Mm -hmm. um, black people don't experience the medical profession, the medical system the same way we do. Mm -hmm. And so it just compounds the pain you know, because they don't, they don't get the answers that they deserve. Yeah, she'll live with that for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, we have five minutes left. Why yeah. don't we um, each take about 30 seconds to, to say what we want to say to feel complete, and then I'll close the call. Uh, Deanne, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I really appreciate everyone sharing. These conversations are not always easy. And, um, but super necessary, um, as Jackie said, for, for us to be more aware, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing, um, awareness. We're not, we'll never graduate. <laughs> um, nobody's ever going to give us a certificate and say, okay, you know, everything about racism, you know, it's going to be going on for the rest of our lives. And I appreciate people's willingness to have that dialogue. And thank you, Kathy, for bringing this book to my attention. I didn't know about it before. So thank you. You're welcome. Chuck, would you like to say anything? Well, it's been, it's been useful. I've learned a few things and I appreciate your listening to the uh, conundrum that, that I'm getting involved in and uh, having to deal with. And I think I understand it better now. Yeah. Thank you for bringing your point of view to us and allowing us to discuss it. <laughs> it was huh? not my point of view. I oh, yeah. got the middle. I your got, questions. Yeah, I, your got, I got pointed as uh, uh, 
uh, the leaders, uh, we, we don't have ministers, we have leaders, um, uh, go between, between the congregation and him. And an individual brought these issues up. Gotcha. And, uh, and it's exploding and uh, it's falling partly on me anyway to try to calm things down. Oh, well, that's challenging. Yeah. Thanks um, for being here. Go ahead, Jess. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess what I would say, um, what I'm taking, well, so one thing, Chuck, that I, I would like to say to you is that I believe strongly that uh, we should follow where we're called. And if you are in fact called to the issue of uh, poor white people, and there are huge problems there, you know, I don't think they're well educated enough to make good decisions and they have all sorts of employment issues. If you're called to that issue, I think you should put your energy and passion there while remaining open to racism as another issue. Uh, that's, I think we're called to do certain things. Yeah, as I see it, it's, it's slightly different than that. Okay. Um, we have a strong uh, cadre of people who work very hard and do a lot of good things. And, and they have a coalition with um, an organization called Power, which is primarily a black group of churches uh, working to to stop races on on racism issues. Uh, but now somebody came up and said, "But wait a minute, uh, we never talked about this. Uh, I'm being forced to accept this thing. I think there's other things to talk about." I think uh, uh, excluding white uh, people while we do things specifically for blacks has caused harm and probably harmed the cause of blacks and so on. And uh, so he raised his issues and well, he should have, I think, but yeah. now were, and the, now the issue really for me is not whether who's right or wrong, but how do we handle differences of opinion within the congregation so that we can allow people to express a minority opinion? Mm -hmm. yeah. To me, that's the, the real issue because these things go on. And with liberals, I've seen it in Unitarian churches as well as in the ethical society liberals can be just as staunch fixed and arrogant, adamant, arrogant. Uh, yeah. arrogant as trump supporters yeah and that's and we're becoming yeah. more and more polarized yeah i'm gonna say this is to be continued yeah. okay i'm sorry yeah it's okay Thank you all for being here. Uh, please go to our calendar at peacealliance.org. Check out all of our programs. If you appreciate what we're offering, please consider donating. I put the uh, links in the chat and you can also go to peacealliance.org in the top right-hand corner right next to the button calendar is the button to donate. So 
thanks for being here. And I hope to see you all for our uh, next book. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thank you. Bye, Chuck. Bye. Bye, Jackie. Bye, Jackie.